So uh, now I'm expecting like everybody to just bombard me after the service. This is actually very sadly uh, Shauna's last week before she goes back to Australia, but uh, that does mean I will have a lot of free time to answer more questions. <laughs> so she definitely was not kidding. But uh, I do gladly accept conversation, feedback, and questions. So for me, let me just also say good evening and welcome to Church at Five. Um, I'm really excited about this series uh, because we, it is a, a church-wide series that we're doing right now, so meaning uh, there's kind of one sermon that's going to be in all the services, and each of us as the elders are kind of uh, taking our turn. And so it's been really, it's been a kind of a, a different way to go about it, but it's been really encouraging to kind of see this kind of, uh, for me also, just I was just preaching in this, mo- this morning in the morning services, see a couple faces that were also there, so uh, you get to hear this again for the third time. And um, it's cool to just remember that we're all one church. You know, we're all here together. We're all one community. God has, is building something in here for us all as Calvary Chapel. And uh, these kind of combined series remind us of that and keep us all kind of together and focused. And I feel like it's a good thing. And what a great topic. Jesus is greater than. Amen? Amen. Man, you guys are way better than the morning service. Ooh, I feel like I'm at home now. They were like, amen. It's like, man, where does, come on. Jesus is greater. That's awesome. How encouraging it is to be reminded that we have a Savior that is greater than in this time of year. You know, we think about Christmas. We think about maybe baby Jesus, you know. He doesn't seem that great. I mean, you know, I've got a a nine-month-old. And, um, you know, they're great, but not, not something you want to put your faith in. We can maybe forget that, man, Jesus, when he was born as that baby, is, is God incarnate. He's all-powerful. He's greater than everything that was, everything that is, and everything that will be. So we can say Jesus is greater than, and you can just fill in the blank, and it is true. And what we're focusing on today, what we're looking at, is that Jesus is the greater prophet. So we're kind of looking back right now. And last week, Alex started off this series with Jesus is greater than Moses, kind of looking at the law and a lot of that. And it was uh, a really powerful start to the series. I think he set a a nice bar for us. And um, I only only caught the church at five, but uh, if you didn't catch, if you weren't in any services this last week, I encourage you to go and listen to it, watch it online on YouTube, and uh, so you can kind of stay with us in this series. And also, uh, just because I, yeah, I found it to be really an encouraging message, and now you have four versions to choose from. All, I think all four online, or at least the last I checked. So check that out if you didn't get a chance. Now today we're looking at the statement, Jesus is greater than Jonah. This is an interesting statement. First of all, I find it really interesting that of all the prophets in the Old Testament, and there are quite a few, and some of them are really amazing, he chooses, Jesus chooses Jonah of all the prophets to compare himself with. Why Jonah? Why would he choose Jonah? Now, if you know the story of Jonah, uh, it's a pretty reasonable question to ask. Why Jonah? Now, interesting kind of side note that I found as I was uh, preparing for this, that Jesus and Jonah both came from Nazareth. And I kind of wondered, maybe there's like this hometown hero feel going on uh, with Jesus, meaning as he grew up, he would have heard a lot about Jonah. And if you've ever like been to a small town or come from a small town where somebody famous came out of there, 
uh, people never really shut up about it. It's just like as soon as you come to visit, they're like, oh, did you know so-and-so came from our place, from this village? Isn't that amazing? It's like, well, that was like, you know, 50 years ago. Maybe it's time to move on. And I would imagine that that was the case. So even though Jonah is maybe not the greatest of prophets in a lot of ways, uh, being that kind of hometown uh, field, I think Jesus would have heard about him maybe even more than other prophets. They would have kind of like, hey, yeah, Jonah, he came from here. But as we'll see, Jonah, he's not the model prophet in a lot of ways. The book of Jonah, for instance, if you aren't familiar with it, and we'll be kind of uh, referencing Jonah, but I'm not going to actually read from it, uh, but I would encourage if you haven't, you can read it. We went through a series here uh, of Jonah a while back, so some of you will maybe remember that. It was a while back, though. And if you're not familiar with it, though, you take 15 minutes, read it, and then maybe this sermon will make even more sense later. It's like a, a, second, a second wind for you. But Jonah's not the model prophet, for sure. As the book starts, the very opening of the book of Jonah, we see other references to him in other books, but Jonah, obviously the book of Jonah is where we find the bulk of information about him. And it starts off with him running from God. He's running the other way. God has called him, put it on his heart, told him, you need to go to Nineveh, and you need to preach to them to repent. And Jonah didn't so much, so strongly didn't want to see God save the people of Nineveh that instead of listening to God, instead of obeying God, he gets on a ship and he heads in the opposite direction. That's the beginning of the book of Jonah. So not a great start. Not something really, not a model prophet, not somebody you would really think of when you think of Jesus directly. So if you know the story of Jonah or even just having that image in your mind, it's easy to see, yeah, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Duh. Sermon over. <laughs> Jesus is greater than Jonah. Obvious. Why, though? Because, of course, Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Of all the Old Testament prophets, Jesus is far greater. So why Jonah? Well, when we read Jesus' words here in Matthew where we're getting this whole concept from. It wasn't my idea. It's there. It's in the text. It's in the Bible. Jesus compares himself with Jonah. When we read that text, there's a, 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 a theme that emerges that I think we have to take time and kind of explore because it's kind of, to me, it's the whole root or the whole line of why we see this. And the clear, or this kind of a clear theme that we see is, of course, signs. Signs. It's all about signs. Thus, the greater question is, what is then the sign of Jonah? What is the sign of Jonah? What is he really talking about here? Because when we understand that, then we begin to see the clear connection between Jonah and Christ. So let's, let's kind of unpack this, though, and bring it into our kind of modern understanding, looking at, especially from uh, starting with the request that has been placed on Jesus. The passage opens with this, and this is where the theme of this, of signs, first emerges. And then it's followed, of course, by Jesus' reply to the request. The Pharisees, they're asking Jesus to give them a sign. So they're saying, hey, prove it to us that you are who you say you are. Prove it then. You're the Son of God, the Son of Man. What is that? Prove it to us. We want a sign. Give us something. They say, we want to see a sign from you. And it's, it's very, it's, there's a derogatory feel to it. We want to see a sign from you. It's very mocking. 
Now, to be certain, in their hearts, they're simply trying to trap him into saying something that they can then later use against him. That's their whole goal here. They want to bring Jesus down. And if we look back in the text in Matthew, how this kind of whole thing begins, we know that they're, they've already accused him of, of, his, of kind of doing his power uh, from something demonic. And so they're kind of trying to trap him into saying something that they can show, that, oh, this is not of God, but something demonic. But let's consider for a moment the relevance of the question, especially for us today, before we look at Jesus' reply. Because we live in a time with so much access to information about Jesus Christ. There's so much information at our fingertips about Jesus Christ. Yet, this has not led us to a greater collective knowledge of who He is but rather sent us down a rabbit hole of uncertainty, of division, where people are not knowing where to look, who to trust, what to ask, the right questions to ask. It's led to us living in a generation where so many, when it comes to the truth about Christ, are walking around with their eyes closed, their fingers in their ears, and yet demanding to see signs, to see proof, the evidence about the claims of Christ. It would be like if we were walking around through the city right now, and for some reason you hadn't looked at a calendar in a few months. Even then, it would be pretty shocking to me if you had no idea we were in the Christmas season. If you looked in this room, you might just think, well, oh, they just really like Christmas lights. That's weird. It's obvious. It's obvious when we look around with the decorations, the Christmas sales, the music. If you turn on your radio, last Christmas I gave you my... Every single, like, ten minutes that song is on. That's how I know it's Christmas. I just turn on the radio. And I just want to say, Germany, you can do better. There is better Christmas songs than this one. Really. I don't get... I had never even heard that song until I came to Germany. You guys get really hooked on those, the strangest things. Anyway, that's personal, that song. It just, now you guys are all going to be forgetting everything I say, but you'll remember that song because it gets stuck in your head. It's obvious. The, my point is that the signs of the season are all around us. If you're looking, if you have your eyes open, if you're looking around, it's pretty hard to miss. Before we look at Jesus' reply to their request... Let's also consider that they had seen, they had seen him do miraculous signs and wonders beyond what most of us could ever even imagine. You know, I love John says that you, you couldn't fill enough, there's not enough books to fill with all the things that he did. We're only giving you the highlights in the Gospels. He did so many things, and they had been witness, they had heard his teaching from Jesus' own lips. They had seen him raise the dead, heal the sick. The blind being given sight, feeding the hungry, ruling over nature. And yet, they were blind to these things. They had their eyes closed, their fingers in their ears, only choosing to believe what they wanted to believe. Is that so different today? I believe if Jesus appeared right now, in the flesh, on this stage, and said, here I am, here I am. 
what the Bible says about me is true. That's who I, that, that is who I am. Most of us, after even a week, would already begin to doubt the things that our own eyes had seen. Those watching online would be like, oh, man, they're really good with special effects. It can't really be Jesus. Or maybe it was something I, I ate. Maybe they put something strange in the water and we're all having just a collective hallucination. We can convince ourselves that anything is true given enough time. I think seeing is not always believing. So let's look at Jesus' reply to that request. And when we read it, we can feel like, oh, it's a bit harsh. It's coming on a bit strong. But I want to show you that in his reply, there's also great, great hope for us today. In verse 39, it says, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Adulterous reminds us that it's, they, they had another God besides God, and it was ultimately themselves. A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, there are a few things to note when we read that. The first thing, the very first thing that he does is he condemns the request. He condemns the request. Why? Because they had already seen so much, and yet they chose to not see, to not hear, but to only believe what, he, what they had already decided they wanted to believe. Nothing would have changed their mind. A wicked generation asks for a sign. A wicked generation asks for more than what it's been given. A wicked generation asks for more than what it's been given. You see, all generations throughout all of history have been given some sign, some gift of the sign that Jesus Christ would come, that a Messiah would come, and that salvation would be through Him. They had Jesus Christ Himself standing in front of them, saying, Here I am. And they chose not to believe. We today have the Word of God right here. We can hold it in our hands. We can read it. We have it right there in front of us. What will we do with it? Will we choose to believe? Will we accept it? Or will we demand more when so much has been given? When so much has been given. The second thing to note is that Jesus does not refer back to his miracles. I find this really interesting because I'm not Jesus. Surprise. And I would have, I would, that would have been my go-to. Uh, you, want, you want a sign? Hello, you've been following me for weeks. What else do you, I mean, the dead were, the dead were raised. I mean, the blind, that's, what are you talking about? A sign? The signs are, I've been showing you signs for this whole time. But he doesn't go back to that. He doesn't refer to his miracles. Which tells us those aren't really the important signs, are they? Because even if we see things like that right in front of us, we can immediately begin to doubt it. What does he point to? Instead, he points to an Old Testament prophet. What? First of all, we know they would have known the story of Jonah well. 
There were Pharisees. They studied the Old Testament. They knew the prophets. They knew what it said. They knew the story of Jonah better than we do. They knew it well. So he's saying that you, there are signs that have already been given. See, the first promise of Jesus Christ, the first promise of a Messiah came all the way back first when Adam and Eve first sinned. God promised that that one would come, that one would come that would rectify, that would bring things, would restore things back. And that promise continued through Abraham, through Moses and the law, through David, through all the prophets. As Alex mentioned last week, all of the Old Testament, every single section is pointing to Jesus Christ. Every section, including even the laws he mentioned last week, is really about Jesus and certainly every single prophet in the Old Testament. And often they're prophesying about Jesus. But even their lives themselves were often prophetic images of what Christ would do. We've been seeing that a lot with Daniel, if, you'll, if you've been paying attention. A lot of the stories and a lot of the narrative in the first six chapters of Daniel are also a lot of prophetic images for what would come later, including images of Christ. But as I mentioned, there's, the third thing is the hope in what he says. And this is the hope given to us in Jesus' reply. Because he says, no sign will be given it. You demand a sign. No sign's going to be given you except, except, there's an exception, the sign of Jonah. You see, we're not left hopeless. We're not left with no sign. We're not left with nothing. We're given a sign. And it is an exceedingly great and clear sign if we choose to have our eyes open and our heart ready to receive it. If you have your eyes closed and your ears plugged, you, you're going to miss it. But if you have your eyes open, it's right there. So what is that sign? What is the sign of Jonah? Let's read verse 40 together again. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now for those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, see Jonah was running away. As I mentioned in the beginning, he's running from God. What does that mean? He's in rebellion. He's in sin. He's in rebellion against God as he flees God's call. And what does God do? As that ship is sailing in the opposite direction, God cannot abide the sin, especially of a prophet here. And he sends a storm against that ship. Not just any storm, a strong and mighty storm. It says that the sailors who were trained, seasoned sailors, they were in great fear for their lives. This was not just some ordinary storm. This was the wrath of God. God cannot abide sin. He hates sin. And Jonah in this time, I found interesting, is found sleeping in the ship as the storm is coming against it. A similar image to Jesus as he sleeps in the boat when the disciples face a great storm. Except Jesus can stand up and tell the storm to stop because he has authority over the storm. Jonah doesn't. And when they wake Jonah up, he's not surprised, though. He's not the model prophet, I have to say, but he is a prophet. He knows some things about God. He knows some things about how things work with God. So he's not surprised by this storm. He knows what's going on. It's not some random storm. It's not some weather phenomenon, like just some freak storm that's just coming out of nowhere. This is God's anger against sin. And he knows the only way to appease the anger of God 
is sacrifice. And so he chooses to sacrifice himself. He chooses to sacrifice himself. Now, has he given up hope? If you know the story, you might be wondering. Or is he really laying his life down for the sake of the sailors? We can't really be sure. We don't know the true heart of what was going on in, in him. But we can say for sure that he did sacrifice himself. And when he did, the sailors on the ship are saved. And they give glory to God. They're saved. They even repent. They turn to God. Jonah then spends three days, three nights in the belly of a great fish. And I want to, as I understand the story of Jonah, I believe he died in that whale, in that fish. He died in there. And it says that he, uh, there's a prayer that he prays from that. I believe he was praying that prayer from the realm of the dead because we also see other examples in Scripture of people communicating from that realm. And I believe he died. And three days later, he's brought back to life miraculously. And I believe that the story of Jonah is absolute fact. It actually happened as the scripture says. And then he goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh where God had told him to go in the first place. And he preaches damnation. That they're all doomed. Forty days and God's going to destroy the city. I just want to say, not a great sermon. Not a really encouraging message. There was zero hope in the way that he presented the truth. He was just like, God's going to destroy you. You know, say your goodbyes, it's over. Like, he's not preaching a good, great, encouraging message. But perhaps they had caught wind. They knew what had happened. They had heard that he was in a fish for three days, meaning he had to have died and was brought back to life. Maybe that was a sign to them. I could be very certain of one thing. They definitely smelled him as he came into the city because I'm pretty sure no matter what you do, you can't scrub off three days of being inside of a fish. I'm pretty sure he smelled like fish probably the rest of his days. Maybe that's why he was so grumpy towards the end of his life or the end of chapter 4 in Jonah. Whatever it was, the sign of Jonah led them to repentance you see, Jesus chooses Jonah because many prophets prophesied that the Messiah would come, but maybe nowhere else do we see such a great and perfect depiction of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made for us and the salvation that he offers us because of that sacrifice. Verse 41 shows us the line between those who see it and don't. It says, verse 41 says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. This generation, that's referring, because we, we can say that that's referring to everybody to today because Jesus is is referring to a future event when he says this, right? His own death and resurrection. So we can be absolutely certain this applies to everyone that came after the resurrection, meaning us today. We're in that generation. And Jesus is actually prophesying as the greater prophet that he is about his second coming. He will come again. He will come again. He has come. 
and he will come again, and all will be judged. All will be forced to give an account for everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever looked at. We will all have to give an account for everything we've done. And when we stand at that judgment, you will either be found under grace as Jesus himself speaks on your behalf. As Jesus himself speaks on your behalf because you have put your trust in him rather than in yourself. Or you will be condemned. For even generations of old, like Nineveh, the people of Nineveh can condemn us because they only heard the truth through the prophet Jonah. That's why I find it so, again, so interesting that he chooses Jonah because, again, he didn't preach a great sermon. He wasn't a great speaker, it seems, and he didn't even want them to be saved. In fact, he hated them so much that he would rather run away and die than than preach the truth to them. And yet that was enough for them to believe. So how much more then are we today without excuse? We, how, much, how much better do we have it today? That we don't have to hear the words of a prophet. We don't have to hear the words of a prophet, especially one like Jonah, who like really hates you as he's preaching to you. We don't have to listen to the words of a prophet. We don't have to try and listen to what they say and try to work really hard to to be a certain way or to do the right things. But we today have the written, living word of Jesus Christ for us to hold in our hands and to read. And through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, His word, that truth of of the word of God is then written onto our very hearts as we seek after Him. On the contrary, when we don't accept this to be true, when we don't accept this to be true, this is where everything we know about Christ, when we don't accept it to be true, we reject Christ himself and all that he brings us, not only our salvation, but hope and joy and peace and love and grace and everything that he brings us and offers us through our salvation. If we don't accept him for who he says he is, we cannot receive what he brings us. And ultimately, and most importantly, is our salvation. You see, we're born in sin. We're born in sin. Um, As a parent, I can tell you, you don't teach children to be sinful. That just comes pretty naturally. We're born into sin. It's in our hearts when we're, as, we, as we come into this world because this world has fallen in sin. And sin stirs up the anger of God. We cannot abide sin. And the truth is, we still, we sin every single morning. We sin every single morning enough to be sent to hell. And I think, what? No. No, no, no. I'm a pretty good person. You see, all sin, all sin separates us from God because God cannot be, cannot coexist with sin. I'm not just talking about Hitlers. I'm not just talking about people who've, cre- who've committed great crimes, murder, 
Those are the sinners. Jesus says if you hate someone in your mind, you, you are, you're, you're just one step away, one decision away from murder. We have to understand sin differently. It's so dangerous. <laughs> and it, every sin separates us from God, and we're born into that. Our thoughts of pride, of jealousy, of envy, of lust. And this is not to mention the actions that follow from those thoughts. We're all capable of horrendous things given the right circumstances. Because that sin is in our heart. Every one of us sins. All have fallen. All, none are good. None are good, the Bible says. All fall short of the glory of God. John says, if you don't think you're a sinner, then you don't even know God. We have to understand sin correctly. We all are sinners, and every one of us deserves to go to hell. Everyone. We are like those sailors. As Jonah is, is being, as the storm comes against Jonah as he's on the ship, the sailors are working as hard as they can, and Jonah says, the, the lot falls to Jonah. They know he's, it's, he's to blame. They say, okay, well, we're still going we're gonna to try really hard. We're going to try really hard to get back ourselves. We're like those sailors often. We, we're trying so hard, but the truth is there is no hope against the anger and wrath of God against sin without sacrifice. And if you don't think that God is angry at sin, if you say, well, that sounds too harsh, this is the word of God. This is what the word of God tells us. God is angry at sin. And if you're not understanding that, you're not understanding the good news of the gospel. See, the good news is that though God's anger is stirred up against us because of our sin, a sacrifice was made. A sacrifice was made, a propitiation for our sin. Jesus himself took on the anger and the wrath of God that we may be free. How awesome is That's the good news. That's the gospel. That we're free to come close to Christ no matter what our past is. We are, because it doesn't matter if it's a little sin or a big sin. God cannot abide any sin. A sacrifice had to be made, and it was. And when we receive the grace of Christ, because we trust our life in His hands, we can come close to Him. And He is always close to us. No matter what your week looked like this week, no matter how much you messed up, that sacrifice is enough forever. And as we're coming into this time where we're filled with hope and filled with anticipation about Christmas coming right around the corner, and we remember that Jesus, He came. We remember His first coming, and we look forward to, and we long for His second coming. I encourage you to, or I ask you, what is the sign that you are looking for? What do you need to believe that He is who He says He is? That He has, in fact, come, and that He will come again? Or maybe what sign do you need to take that next step of faith and trust Him, not just with a portion of your life, not just with a piece, not just on a, a Sunday at 5, between 5 and 6.30, but everything in your life, all of who you are, to hold nothing back, knowing that He sees every bit of who you are. What do you need? What sign do you need? Because see, we don't live in darkness anymore. We live in a time of revelation. 
and a time of light more than any generation before us. We have been given the word of God that shines like a morning star and the truth that has been revealed to us is put directly into our hearts as we seek Christ. Or as Peter puts it so beautifully in 2 Peter 1.19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is he talking about here? He's saying we can look at the Old Testament and we can see the truth of Christ there and we can trust it. It's, a, it's something trustworthy, something that we should pay attention to, we should listen to. But we also have to remember that that was a light, a small light in a dark time, in a dark place. And yet, when we look at the story of Jonah, it was bright enough to illuminate for the people of Nineveh their need to repent and to turn to God. Again, not a great sermon, not a great message, but that small light of God's truth was enough to turn their heart. And now we live in a time where the morning star has risen in our hearts. Jesus has come into the world, and the light that he shines shines into us, into our hearts. It's been revealed to us. So what's the point? The signs are all around you. If you're, not, if you're looking, if you have your eyes open, if you have your ears unplugged, if you're paying attention, you will have a hard time missing it. You'll have a hard time missing it. To close with something practical, I encourage you, if you're challenged by this, to pray as David prayed. Search my heart, O God. Help me to have my eyes open where they're closed and my ears open where I've, I've plugged them. My heart open where I've maybe shut off certain portions of it. That we would not be closed to the truth that we would see the signs all around us that Jesus has come and that we would all trust in the word of God as a lamp unto our feet to lead us and to guide us because if we reject the word of God, we reject Christ. He is the word, it says in First John, in John, sorry, not First John, in the Gospel of John. He is the word. To reject the word of God is to reject Christ. Now, if you don't know where to begin, if you think, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, the first thing I would say is don't leave today without talking to somebody. Start asking questions. You can come up to me, apparently, as Shauna said in the beginning. You can also go to Shauna. Ask somebody. Start asking questions. Take those first steps. Open yourself up to the truth. Because Christ has revealed himself to the world. And the promises that he has given, the promise that he's given us is that all those who seek him will find him. But so many walk with their eyes closed, fingers in their ears, demanding a sign and missing what's right in front of them. Don't be that person. At least take that step. See what you find if you really genuinely seek him what a wondrous thing it is 
that Jesus Christ has come to the earth. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The truth of the sign of Jonah is that Jesus Christ is alive today and will come again. This should lead us to repentance for our sin and to a greater and deeper trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our strength through everything we face in this life and as we look forward and long for the one to come. This truth should fill us with great peace in the midst of trials and tribulations. Hope, as Alex mentioned last week, hope and a confidence that we are going to be with him in eternity, a love for him and for one another, a joy, a joy that surpasses everything that we could understand, everything we see in our circumstances, joy that is contagious to those around us. We want to be filled with these things so that we receive them, that we're filled up daily with the fruit of the Spirit, but also so that we would have the courage to shout it from the rooftop. As the angels filled the sky when Jesus Christ was born and laid in a manger, we too should want to share with loud voice, proclaiming that peace has come, goodwill has been shown to mankind, for we have been given a great and perfect hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. I invite the band to come up as I do. Jesus Christ, you are our Lord.